the joyous, spirited singing in which we have already participated and the tremendous opportunity of approaching our Heavenly Father in the avenue of prayer has all reminded us perhaps of that strength of that statement in the 26th Psalm in which it is stated in verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. To come together where in fact the honor of God is presented, appreciated and set forth has been an encouragement I would trust to each of us already. And as we enter into a consideration of a portion of his word that we might even be further exhorted and edified in the most holy faith. As we noted last Lord's Day morning, we on that occasion studied a bit about the causes and the reasons why our Savior went to the cross in the way he did. The fact that you and I as the chief beneficiaries of that are those that have opportunity to have sins remitted and to appear justified before the God of heaven. Perhaps as a sequel or follow-up to that lesson, might we consider today a question that surrounds how close are you and God? In essence, the nearness of God. Over the next few moments this morning, I would ask that you consider some of the things in the Bible about that subject that would challenge each of us to ask, how close am I to God? How close are you to God? As we begin that with some introductory thoughts, isn't it a tremendous and amazing thing that God is, of course, so great? Throughout the Bible, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, He is presented as the awesome God of heaven. In every regard, there's no limit to His strength, no restriction upon His knowledge, no consideration or thought of that which He's unable to accomplish if it is His will. When you and I consider our own weakness in His sight, the fact we do not know everything, we cannot do everything, and we are thus sufficiently limited in sin, indeed how small we are compared to how great He is. In a way, that perhaps makes it tempting for us to consider God to be some distant being who in a way is not directly near to you and me in life. He's great, but so great that he is afar off at best. We would in fact do ourselves great injustice if that is our view. If we merely see him as someone to be approached only at great distance, for God throughout his word desires to be intimate and personal, knowing each of us exceedingly well. I would ask that we think about that this morning, beginning with some of the thoughts on this opening slide. Would you consider with me the thoughts of how these things are presented? That's not what it's supposed to look like. We'll try it again. Who knows why things like that happen, but for some reason with computers on occasion they do, and certainly beyond my knowledge. But anyway, in considering how close, how near God in His Word presents Himself to be, would you notice some of these thoughts about why it is in the Scriptures we know these things? 
First of all, God made each and every individual, His human creatures, with the marvelous capacity for many things that no other element in His creation has. You and I, for example, can come to appreciate His greatness, whereas animals cannot. We can ponder the thoroughness and marvelousness of that which He has fashioned with His own hands. In fact, in the eighth Psalm, do we not read in verses 3 and 4, as well as in verse 5, the grandness of the following thought, When I consider thy heavens the work of thine hands which thou hast ordained, the moon and stars, what is man that thou hast created, that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. That describes the blessedness of how humankind, you and I, have been fashioned by him. Wasn't it Paul who in Romans 1 verse 20, along an idea similar to that, said that you and I are able to witness and appreciate his handiwork in creation. Again, animals are not able to do that. But you and I can know there's a God and appreciate his grandness and his awesomeness and respond appropriately to him. That's the way he made us. In considering that very thought and idea, it would be fair also to notice some ways in which the Bible teaches us about the relationship that he intends us to have. I've listed a few passages. We might well note one out of each listing. For example, in considering the personal relationship, God has even in his word taught such a thing is to be the case. For example, in Matthew chapter 10 verse 30, what does God know about you and about me? The very hairs of your head are numbered, for the Savior himself said so. But in the next chapter, you and I have often noted the invitation extended by the Savior, but maybe we have not appreciated its personal character. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice the word you. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is true that there is, of course, an interest on the part of God for the church at large. But there Jesus was interested individually, that they would come and lay their cares and burdens upon him, and he would thus provide an assistance or aid for that lacking thing. What's more... In addition to being taught, hasn't it been exemplified in the Word of God? In our study in Genesis on Sunday morning, we have been reminded so many times about the influential power of those who walked with God. Though he lived in a world that had turned its back upon God, Noah walked with him. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. One chapter prior to that, Enoch walked with God. When the Bible discusses walking with someone in so many times, the discussion has to do with the intimacy and the closeness that they experience. They are, in fact, very, very good friends. We've noted before that Abraham was called the friend of God in James chapter 2, verses 24 and following. To say that he was a friend of God, God appreciated and knew about Abraham and the tendency of his life, Genesis 18, 19. It would be fair for us to notice at the same time that in addition to this close relationship being exemplified and being taught is also shown in the life of Jesus. When we turn back the pages of the New Testament and read, especially in those gospel accounts, 
Jesus on so many instances showed a keen interest in the circumstances of people individually. In John chapter 3, it was at night when a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus. Did the Savior say, come back and see me in the morning I'm trying to sleep? Jesus did not. He took, in fact, the lengthy opportunity and time to share with Nicodemus those things that he most needed to hear. Jesus began that conversation, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that God has in store. In the moments that followed in the conversation, Nicodemus' life was changed because Jesus had taken the interest and time to share with him that which was most needful and important. One chapter later, in the Gospel according to John chapter 4, this time it was a Samaritan woman. We understand in that culture and day that that was not the norm, and yet Jesus, while sitting on a well, took the opportunity to initiate a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Why? The Lord was concerned about her. He was interested in her. She needed the gospel which he had, of course, to share. Do we not see that Jesus had an interest keenly in the individual? Many others, of course, could be noted as well. In John chapter 5, there's the interest in that man who was unable to get into the pool at Bethesda to be healed. Jesus took the opportunity to hear his story and heal him on the spot. We have a Savior who not only wants to be interested in the church at large, but with each one of us in it. To say all that is to say that even God is illustrated and pictured in this same way. There was, of course, that parable in the 15th chapter of Luke about a father with two boys. The younger one requested his inheritance, and off he went into a far distant country, and the text says he wasted his substance with riotous living. But we also see in that same episode about an anxious father who day by day watched down the roadway to see when his precious son would return. Finally, that day came. The son came to his senses and dad was waiting. God, you see, hasn't given up on the boy. He hadn't cast him off and said, you've made your own bed, now lay in it. Oh, he knew the boy had lessons to learn, but when he came to his senses, he was ready with open arms to take him back home. You see, God, even when you and I do make mistakes, but approach the mistake properly and seek repentance therefrom, God will welcome us back too. You see, God cares about us. He wants us to be near to Him. Maybe finally, didn't Paul state the matter so appropriately in Acts 17, 27, when there, standing in the very intelligentsia of Athens, he said, God isn't very far from any one of us. Indeed, in His greatness, He isn't. But perhaps in the way that you and I feel, it might be different. As an opening example of this, what about David? In thinking about David, the relationship that he experienced with God is such a tremendous thing because it is of that that we read from the third psalm just a moment ago. But how many other verses did David make mention of this very idea? And what benefit did he have? In Psalm 56, verse 11, David, by virtue of his relationship with God, was able to say, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. What about you and me? Or secondly, what about the Psalm 27, verse 1? There, David made this rather potent statement. 
He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I will not fear what man can do unto me. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you and I find ourselves overcome with fear from various things or forces, entities, or influences? David said, God is the strength of my life. Three verses later in Psalm 27 verse 4, he again reiterated that very thought and even extended it by announcing how thoroughly excited he was to be close and united with the God whom he cherished and loved. Notice also that in terms of the strength of his life and the confidence to be known, maybe it is in that 27th Psalm that we would read verses 2, 3, and 4. Would you please read those verses with me and listen to David's refrain. When the wicked... Even mine enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh. They stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple." What is the one thing you and I most desire? David said that my highest desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord, to inquire of His temple, and to know the character of His being. David couldn't get close enough to God. Oh, we learn later in 2 Samuel especially that he made some tremendous mistakes. He murdered a man basically, committed adultery with another man's wife. But when we read Psalm 51... David came to his senses too. Wasn't he excited about coming back to the place he most wanted to be, very near to the, to the very side of God? To say all these things is to say that David didn't feel whole apart from God. That was how important his relationship was. I would ask you to read also from that same psalm, verses 9, 13, and 14. Hide not thy face from me, Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, O Lord my God. Verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, verse 14. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David didn't want God to leave him. He didn't want to imagine a time when God was not nearby. Do we not begin to see, again, God was not some distant being for David. David wanted God as near as he could get him. He wanted to be by God's side, for he knew only then was he to be protected and secure, and only then was to have the relationship that God wished him to have. That takes us back to the reading that we enjoyed earlier. In the third psalm, listen to how close David and God were at the time that David wrote that. Psalm chapter 3 Let's read the entirety of it, all eight verses. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for God in him, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and a lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked. For the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone, thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. The tenderness of a very thorough sleep. I laid me down and slept, for thou hast protected me. Thou hast been with me. You and I may often appreciate the tranquility and serenity offered by a peacefulness with God himself. And that will be one of the main subjects that will take us through the rest of our lesson this morning. Do you and I know in life the peacefulness and tranquility that comes with a thorough and complete relationship with God? For if he is merely at a distance, if he is someone whom we know by acquaintance at best, then we have not that peace that he desires us to have. We have not that equipped life in such a way that we, like David, can appreciate that even enemies are not able to overwhelm us. For God is at our side. Those statements lead us to ask a few questions as we begin the next segment of our lesson. Would you think with me about some of these questions? And we'll look at them one at a time. What about my personal relationship with God? And what about yours? I've listed a question at the outset of that screen. Sometimes we are asked to take questionnaires or to fill out matters. If this question were posed of you and me and the following multiple choice answers given, which would we choose? How close is your relationship with God? Would we say extremely close, close, perhaps somewhere in between, as might say, distant? Would we say barely existent? Which one would you choose? That's a question, of course, none of us can answer for anybody else. But I can answer it for myself. And you can answer it for yourself. How close do you perceive God to be? Very close or very distant? I'd submit that as we start to answer that question, we have already noted that God desires us to answer very close. He wants us to appreciate and fall back upon Him and know Him intimately and well. The following questions will aid us in our attempt to diagnose better our own statement with regard to the answer. First of all, how often do you talk to God? How often do I talk to Him? It perhaps goes without saying that if we actually desire to have a close and very near relationship, we will talk to Him frequently and often. Isn't that true upon earth? That person with whom, perhaps as a wife or a husband, we are so close. Do we not share conversation frequently? Learn of one another's ways and tendencies and feelings and emotions? In the same way, how often do you and I speak with our Heavenly Father? As we begin with that question, might we recall Daniel? In the sixth chapter of Daniel, we recall a very potent statement there by a young man. Daniel, of course, was one who was in the very case of Babylon at first and later with Persia. But on that occasion, the actual king had signed into law the fact that it was against the law, it was illegal to pray to anyone other than the king for 30 days. Daniel knew about that law. Did it alter his character of praying to God? The text says it did not. For just as he always had three times a day, he bowed his knees and his head as well and prayed to the God of heaven. You see, law didn't change Daniel's disposition. He was so close to God, he continued to pray three times every day. 
Later, the psalmist would say in the 164th verse of Psalm 119 that seven times a day he praised God. Perhaps it goes without saying the Bible does not anywhere command that we pray a certain number of times a day. We know that those of the Muslim faith pray five times daily. The Bible does nowhere command it. But we can reasonably conclude this. If I'm going days at a time and never praying, if I never seek opportunity to talk to my Heavenly Father, it does seem that that is a rather large statement that my relationship with Him is not terribly close, not as close as it ought to be. For that reason, there at the bottom, could we at least conclude that again there is a problem with my spiritual relationship with God if I'm not seeking opportunities at least reasonably frequently to talk to my Heavenly Father. But maybe also a second question. We've asked how often do you and I talk to God? How often do you allow God to talk to you? How often do I allow Him to talk to me? Now, we are not speaking about Him talking to us in dreams and trances and visions and small, still voices of the night. For we learn in Hebrews 1, verse 1, He does not talk to us this day, today that way. What we mean by that is, of course, the Word, of His, the, His Word, the Word of God. How often do we open the sacred pages of the Scriptures and let Him tell us what He wants us to know? How often do we turn through its pages and read it interestingly and powerfully and very delicately, striving ever to reach the proper conclusions as we rightly divide it? How often does that happen? Well, again, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that we must read 51 verses a day. It nowhere says you need to spend an hour and ten minutes a day reading. But do we not notice some examples that may give us some strong clues? In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, on that occasion, Paul, of course, on the second missionary journey, found himself in dire straits. The Jews that had made their way to Thessalonica had caused him to be run out of town for his own personal safety. The next town he came to was called Berea. In that very verse, we have a short, but oh, what a powerful compliment to the Bereans. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Those in Berea, unlike the Thessalonians were told, had such a keen interest in the issues and things spoken of by Paul that daily they opened the scriptures and searched them. The Greek word means they examined them. They didn't just read them in passing and let it go in one ear out the other. They scrutinized, studied, analyzed, examined with the intent of learning whether or not what Paul said was true. Maybe that helps us see also the beautiful text in 2 Timothy 2.15 where we read study, that is, give diligence to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Or Jesus' statement in Luke 9 verse 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We do notice an interest in the word daily in some of these passages and texts. Do we allow God to speak to us through His Word with a keen interest in learning what He would have us to know? That'll be another point that would gauge how close our relationship is with God. 
Again, we can't place a law where God hasn't made one. We can't say that I must read X number of verses a day. But it does seem to strongly suggest that if I'm going days at a time, if I'm allowing dust to accumulate on the surface of my Bible, perhaps I open it on Sunday and not again till the next Sunday, I have a problem in that my relationship is not such that I'm allowing God to talk to me. I'm not opening my heart and letting Him fill it with what He needs it to be filled with. That would seem to certainly be a fair and wise conclusion. These are things each of us can ask ourselves, but they also lead us to ask yet a third question. In addition to our speaking with Him and He speaking with us, what about the thought of that relationship? Does the thought of a close and very near relationship with God excite me and you, or is it really something that we just as soon do without? Does the thought of being so close to God, the, that very thought in its conclusion mean, well, I must not go this place, or I must not talk that way. I must forfeit some of the close friends that I keep such association with. Maybe in the back of our mind, we would really just as soon not, at least for some, have such a close relationship with God. If that's our thinking, it goes without saying we have a serious problem. For that means we're elevating carnal, physical things above the very character of our association with the God of heaven. I've listed some things for you to think about with me there. Texts that challenge us on that very point. Notice that we made note of Ephesians 1 verse 13, as well as Romans 8 verses 9 and following. Especially in that Romans text, Paul says, The Spirit of the Holy Spirit, as it dwells within us, makes us into what God would have us be. And ultimately, we, of course, are joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God. You see, we are described as being very members of His family. That thought should challenge us greatly, for it leads us to ask, do I want that really? Or do I really want to just be distant? Oh, I want to be able to attend the services and know brothers and sisters in Christ, but I really don't want to be bothered every minute of every day by the thought of what God demands of me. You see, I have a problem if that's my thinking. If even indirectly that is my thought. Oh, how we must search the recesses of our heart and in fact quickly allow Satan to be moved therefrom. For that's what he would want us to feel. That's the kind of emotion he would prefer us to have. To keep God sufficiently distant that he doesn't bother me every day. Oh, Sundays and Wednesdays, that's fine, but I want the other days for me. You see, that kind of thinking is disastrous. It's absolutely catastrophic for us to ever make it to heaven. So much so that maybe the next question would lead us more carefully to ask this. Given those set of desires and those set of ideas, would you consider this question too? Does the thought of the church excite you? Does the thought of the blood-bought body of Christ excite you? We know there are many organizations upon earth and there are many other means by which we have association. There's the workplace and there's the community organizations. There's those we know through our children's activities at school. That's only a few. Many others could be named. Do they excite us as much as the thought of the church? If so, then we must not think much of the church. For those things aren't eternal, but the church is. The blood of Christ bought the church. It never bought any of them. 
God sent His Son to buy this church and to give His blood for it. He never purchased them in any way, shape, form, or fashion. You see, that view may indirectly speak volumes about the way and the plateau to which we look upon the nature of the church. Does it excite you? Does the very thought of being a part of the eternal organization that shall never be destroyed and the one that will one day be ushered into the glories of heaven, that ought to excite us. Oh, that ought to bring such excitement and fervor and earnestness to our life and to our heart. In fact, could we not very powerfully say in regard to that excitement, more specifically, its services. When the church has those beautiful opportunities to assemble, as we are now, as we do at other times during the week, do we look forward to them in such a way that in fact they are the highlight of that given day? Or are they just an aftermath, something to do to take up a little time and to make sure we've checkmarked the fact we were there? The attendance at them should be so much more than that. An opportunity not only, of course, to fellowship with those who also desire to go to heaven, but to come into a way that we can more intimately know the God of heaven, to let Him speak to us by virtue of His word, to praise His name in song, to surround the glory of His table, the other things we do in scriptural worship. You see, the services should be an exciting opportunity, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 10, 25. There were some in that day who were purposefully choosing not to assemble. And the Hebrew writer very powerfully challenged them, there are some who've done this, but they failed to see the power of the approaching day and the fact that they must give answer and judgment to this. The very thought of the assemblies perhaps leads me to state something else. There are, of course, occasions when we cannot attend. We each know that. We've each at some point perhaps been sufficiently sick, unable to attend, perhaps involved in an accident. God does not expect us to attend when we cannot. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 20 to 33 illustrate that point. But might we notice that when we can, where else should we desire to be? What other place would be more in line with the desire to have a relationship with God than there? God knows the thoughts and the expressions and the tendencies of our heart. You see, these services are one way that we can, of course, strive to encourage that close relationship. Perhaps finally, do you have peace in your life? God has promised to grant that peace. It goes without saying that if that peace is not there, it's not God's fault. It's mine. If that peace is not there, it's not a fault of heaven. It's mine. For Jesus said in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you. In John 16, verses 31 to 33, yet again He said, In the world you have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. Therefore have peace. Later, Paul said in Philippians 4, The peace of God which passeth understanding shall guard and keep your hearts. Again, if I have not peace, it isn't God's fault. It's not Christ's fault. It's not the Holy Spirit's fault. It's mine. I have some mixed up priorities somehow. I have things directed in the wrong tendency and directed toward the wrong Savior and the wrong Master. We learn in Ephesians chapter 4, there is but one God and one Lord and one Holy Spirit and one faith and one body and one hope. And in addition to that, there's one baptism. 
when we submit ourselves to that platform of oneness, one of the things that comes with it is the peace of life, the peace of God that passeth understanding. That peace God wishes you and me to know. Only you and I can individually answer it. Do I have that peace? Do you have it? Do you and I again become excited about the services and the other things we've considered? To say all that is to say that we can reach a conclusion in an appropriate time, of course, right before our invitation hymn. But would you think with me very basically about the highlights of the lesson? God wants a very close relationship with each and every one of us, individually and personally. He wants not only, of course, for that to be a guiding factor in our life, but through it He can influence so many others. And thus, in terms of those questions again, what about prayer? Do you pray often, frequently, looking forward to the opportunities? What about allowing God to speak to you through His Word? Do you get excited about those thoughts too? Those times when you can open and come to learn more what God would have each of us to know? What about the others that we mentioned as well? Do you really want that relationship? Is it such a way that you truly desire that better or more than other things? Fourthly and fifthly, the character of God's church, does that bring a great smile to your face, a strong level of excitement? Finally, the character of not only the services thereof, but peace in your life. As you answer those questions for yourself today, you have opportunity, of course, while there's still breath within your lungs and life within your body to make any changes that you might need to make. For you see, when you have that close relationship with Him, you have a life described in ways, both Old and New Testament, that's truly remarkable. Things the world will not fully fathom and understand, but things that will be so cherished that you'll never wish to depart from them. David knew what that meant. In Psalm 3, Psalm 27, he described it. Can those same words describe you and me? If they don't today, perhaps you have never obeyed the gospel. Jesus died for you at Calvary. He took your place on that cross. It was for your sins that He was punished. Come lovingly to Him and obey the gospel in that you believe Him. Repent of your sins. Trust in Him as you confess the great, His great name as your Savior and be baptized. Once you do that, you will feel the burden of sin lifted from your life. You at that moment can begin to so behave that you have a strong relationship with Him that will go stronger day by day. If we could help you do that, we would certainly love to do it. If we could also help you to rededicate your life to Him, perhaps you have not that close relationship, though at once you did, because you've allowed too many factors to come between you and your Maker. Come back to that first love this morning. If we could help you in either of those ways, please let that be known publicly even now while together we stand and while we sing.